Welcome to the show, everybody. My name is Emil Kalinowski. I'm joined by Daniel Want and special guest Sean Mayer. We're going to be going over lithium, the fundamentals of lithium, supply, demand, the outlook. What does it look like for the next 10 years, let's say? But the question, Daniel, that people may be wondering is why did lithium come up on your radar screen? Why do you want to learn about the fundamentals. Give us a little brief introduction overview as to what you're seeing, and then we're gonna introduce Sean properly and dive into the fundamentals. Yeah, well, lithium has been getting a lot of attention in recent years, especially in some of our, or some of my broader client base. It it come up quite frequently uh, from time to time. And when we drop, some of the lithium related you know equities and all of this sort of thing into a lot of the different modeling that we do particularly around underlying liquidity and different participant sort of implied flows it's sort of at a juncture right now where probably i'm jumping the gun too much here but jump it face first yes, no mercy <laughs> so it basically appears like there's the bare minimum requirements necessary in terms of uh, retracement, even accumulation from some of the larger sort of moneyed crowd. However, there's also enough warning signs here to suggest that we haven't really seen the lows in a cycle or sub-cycle that's unfolding presently. And so, if anything, it appears a little bit actually too premature to even be looking to be accumulating presently or earlier in this year when we started to get some of those normal uh, sort of wash out in liquidity and, and accumulation sort of in the larger money flows that we track. And so I thought it would be intriguing to talk to someone who has a lot more expertise in this area globally, especially just to try and get a bit of an assessment, what's going on, supply and demand. I thought towards the end of this uh, discussion, actually, we might do a bit of an exercise where we sort of... Uh, well, we put Sean on the spot a little bit and just say totally anecdotally and, you know, completely discretionary type observations. I was going to describe a few different participant categories just to try and see if you knew anecdotally what you thought they were doing and why. Mm -hmm. And then we just triangulate back towards, you know, what picture that sort of implies for this particular uh, market set, yeah, uh, no so to speak. And just see where that where that ends up, what that ends up looking like. Uh, it'll probably make a lot more sense as I start to talk through this or the questioning towards the end of this discussion or after we actually have a bit of a survey of sort of more fundamental supply-demand conditions. And we just see what that looks like and where we end up in that sort of a discussion. Uh, when I do this in uh, with, you know, in different industries or commodities or with different subject matter experts, it's always very intriguing because a lot of the, the theory around what I'm trying to do is, you know, there's different categories of participants around any given market, some with greater access or proximity to information, some with different balance sheet capacities, different levels of experience, sophistication. And each of those sort of archetypical type groups tend to relate to a cycle in any given commodity or market or industry in fairly, you know, fairly consistent ways, either pro-cyclical, counter-cyclical in, in a few different things. And so when we triangulate that back, even with some of the different analysis tools that we have, we start to get a little bit more of a three-dimensional 
picture or glimpse of, of what is going on in that underlying commodity or market or industry in question. And I thought that might be an interesting thing just to explore uh, to see if anything sort of comes up uh, towards the end of the chat. Sean, I saw you for the first time on Russell Napier's ERIC, which is a research service for professional institutional investors, which is primarily or exclusively where you focus and release your information and share your knowledge. So it's, uh, it's wonderful to have you that you're on this show with a more retail audience. You do post elsewhere your thoughts about markets. So tell us a little bit about your work, your company, and where the broader public can reach you, as well as if in case there are any institutional investors watching. You're right. Um, basically, our focus is hedge funds, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, family offices, uh, Asia, Europe, US. Um, built this business up over the last 20 years. I was formerly at Nomura. I was formerly a fund manager. So I've been around the block uh, before I started my own business. And it's word of mouth, basically. I've got a couple of outsourced sales guys, but mostly it's word of mouth. One manager tells another, they go on trial and the conversion rate and something like the Eric videos was very high. So that's, that's nice business. I don't do retail for a lot of reasons, including compliance. And the price point is quite high, $15,000-$20,000 annual subscription. Basically, the energy transition is, one, we, we focus on where macro and technology intersect and where that creates opportunity. That's our big thesis, right? Most economists and central bankers don't look enough at technology shifts and how they impact macro, be it inflation, be it terms of trade affecting FX. I mean, right now, for instance, you look at China, where the export numbers are blowing through all-time records. They're heading for a trillion-dollar trade surplus this year. And that's only partly because of domestic weakness. It's partly because of the fact they are beginning to dominate the clean energy transition. They own the battery space. They're going to own the EV space because their price point is 30%, 40% cheaper than a Volkswagen or a Tesla. So you look at that, and you can see how they're doing what Korea Japan did in the 70s and 80s, and it completely changes. I mean, everyone's focused on the slowdown in China, all the stuff on property but people are forgetting that they have a very clear 2025 ambition and then a 2035 ambition to be the OPEC of green energy, to control the entire supply chain. And that includes lithium, which we'll come back to. So we focus on, on these themes, semiconductors, the rising semi-intensity of car manufacturing is a big theme of ours. Companies like OnSemi, um, WolfSpeed, all that kind of stuff. But I think this lithium story and this battery story is one of the most important anywhere right now. And it includes grid storage as well as EVs, right? How on earth, when we switch to renewables, do we actually you know, underpin grid resilience via mass storage? Lithium-ion is the only solution. So grid is going to be competing with autos for available lithium supplies, for available cobalt, et cetera, supplies. So to just frame where we are currently in lithium, whether you're a climate change denier or not, you've got to accept the world auto fleet is going to electrify in the next decade, right? We're at 20% plus in China. We're heading the, into the teens in many European countries, and the US, post the clean energy bill, is clearly going to get to those kind of numbers by mid-late decade. So we're going to electrify. Every car maker has announced very ambitious plans. A lot of countries have announced plans to phase out ICE cars by 2030, 2035 kind of time frame, at, at the latest 2040. So it's going to happen. And the question is, how does it happen? How do we get the resources necessary to make this a reality? Now, just two weeks ago, the IEA, International Energy Agency, published a big review of this transition uh, and the resource intensity of the transition. And they came up with 50 to 60 new lithium mines required by 2030. 
investment to to make those mines a reality is in the order of $45 billion, which I think is an underestimate. But let's just take that number, 45, 50 billion, 50 to 60 new greenfield mines, be they in Australia, while we're talking about spodumene, which is the hard rock um, source, or be it in the kind of lithium triangle, Bolivia, Chile, Argentina, which is salt brine. Either which way, huge investment. And this is a filthy, toxic, water um, intensive process. Clean energy is a dirty process. And that's one of the kind of uh, myths about where we're headed. It's energy intensive and it's a very dirty, polluting process. We're going to talk a bit about the refining process and a bit and why China is going to continue to dominate that, even if the West can build up lithium capacity in places like Australia, Canada, um, and within the US itself and places like Nevada, as Tesla aspires to do. But I want to just frame this as okay, we're going to electrify. We're going to be producing 30, 40 million annually EVs in the world by late this decade, early the next decade, right? So probably at least half of total global production will be electrified by 2030, 2031. That's where we're headed. To get to that, as I said, we're looking at this massive increase to 2 million metric tons a year of lithium production. The US alone will probably consume a quarter of that. And the discussion is going to be, I guess, later on, as your speaker asked, where is the investment opportunity and which companies, which, which kind of mining plays are going to be you know, leveraged to that story? There's four problems I want to address first off. First problem is battery recycling. Companies like Redwood, which have tied up with Ford, and there's several other companies in this space now, which are putting billions into technologies that allow us to more effectively recycle batteries as, as they basically end of life. 13 to 15 years is a good estimate for how long a car battery will last, basically. So as we build volume currently, these cars we're now selling, these Teslas in the last two or three years will come back to the market in, say, the mid-2030s, and they will get recycled back into the new car production chain. Now, if you're building a lithium mine, you've got a 10-year lead time. You've got a 10-year lead time. It comes online. If you start today, say, 2030, 2031, we have a very good result. You then have recycling kicking in by the mid-2030s, late-2030s, as becoming a dominant source of lithium. So your payback period is going to be, at best, a decade. And that's without even talking about solid state batteries, which we'll come back to later on. But you basically, when you build a project out in lithium right now, have got two massive competitive threats from battery recycling, which obviously relies on current lithium production ramping and those batteries getting into the market, and from solid state, which is a polymer electrolyte and doesn't require lithium in the production process. That's still mid-2030s beyond technology at the moment. It's lab stuff and it's going to be small forms like, like, like um, you know, phones and stuff initially. But that's very important because that then sets the price point. Your internal rate of return has got to reflect the terminal valuation risk when you build a new lithium mine, right? Lithium mines may not exist by 2040, 2045. As a, as a, as a, there will be no need for them, basically. So this is very important to understand. The second issue is sequencing. So we have a global electrification of autos shift where you can build a gigafactory in two to three years, right? You can throw a billion dollars at building a huge new gigafactory in, in Texas or in Germany, and they're all doing the same thing. Northfold, I mean, there's a dozen companies now building gigafactories. CATL is just built, building a new one in Hungary. That's pretty fast. You can build a cathode or an anode factory to supply those gigafactories in probably 18 months flat. If you're, if you're someone like Umicore in Belgium, right? Fine. The big bottleneck is the mines. The mines are taking you 10 years plus to get online. 
So there's a massive disconnect between how fast we're building out the battery capacity and the components, the separators, the anodes, the cathodes, etc., and the raw materials that go into making them a useful product. And that sequencing is, is, is where the investment opportunity lies right now, I think. And the Chinese completely get this, which is why the Chinese are vertically integrating all the way back to mine level, from the EV all the way through battery like BYD, all the way through to domestic mines. And the Chinese are now developing. And this is why Goldman Sachs put out this note a couple of months ago, this stupid note in my view, which said, oh my God, we're going to have a new crash in, 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 in lithium prices like we got in 2018-20 because the Chinese are massively investing in new domestic capacity. Yes, they are, but it's a low quality, low grade ore, which will not yield anything like what the Australian and Chilean uh, ore bodies can supply. So the overcapacity thing, I don't buy it, right? It's also important to remember, there is no one lithium price. We, we see the spot price coded at us on Bloomberg screens um, and the spot price in China in particular, right? And that's gone up, whatever, eight, nine fold in a year. Phenomenal numbers, right? Gone ballistic and no investment bank saw that coming. They all extrapolated the 2018-20 bear market ad infinitum despite what was going on in EVs. Most lithium is bought on contract. As those contracts expire, they're starting to reflect the very high spot price, which is why most car makers, including Tesla, BYD, whoever, are raising the cost of EVs five, eight, 10% to reflect the higher battery costs. So battery deflation as a trend is now over because the cost of all the inputs is going up substantially. Now, it may well be you see a correction in spot lithium prices. The Chinese government certainly wants to see one because it's a, it's a threat to their ambitions in building out the EV sector. But one way or another, as I said earlier, you're going to have to have a very high price over a very long period to justify the investment given the terminal valuation risks. So we're not going to get another 2018-19 scenario in lithium, in my view. Put that to one side. It's not going to happen. Um, and there's, that's the, all the supply risks, all the overcapacity risks, I just don't see them as, as, as in any way serious. The other side of the, of the equation is far more likely undersupply and a crisis where a lot of car companies are doing a trapeze act and there's no safety net. And as they jump from the trapeze, there's nothing beneath them because they cannot get the battery supply to meet the EV targets. And the outgoing um, CEO of Volkswagen, actually, at the FT um, Future of the Car uh, conference about two months ago, said exactly that. He said, semiconductors are not the big issue here. It's battery supply. If we can't get raw materials for batteries, we are out of business in five or 10 years' time, especially against Chinese competitors like Geely, like BYD, even Baidu, with its Apollo um, robotaxis, which have got absolutely guaranteed supply domestically. So getting hold of the battery at, an, at a competitive price is going to determine who owns the EV market in 10 years' time. Musk gets that. A lot of auto CEOs still don't get it. They're being incredibly complacent. They assume the market's just going to deliver this, um, you know, and it's just going to happen. It's exogenous. That's not what's going to happen. They're going to have to take control. And in a way, the car industry is going back to Henry Ford Model T era stuff. And if you recall, he used to smelt his own iron ore in Baton Rouge and ship it across the canal to the actual car factory and make it into sheet metal to build a car with. He even went down to the Amazon and tried to build rubber plantations. And if anyone's ever read that book, Fordlandia, that turned into a disaster. But the concept of having total control over the supply chain to make sure that your price point was totally competitive and no one could touch you is exactly what every Chinese car maker is now thinking. And the EV shift is a way for them to basically grab market share, to gate crash the market. So this vertical integration idea where you have to control 
batteries, the gigafactories, all the key components, right down to lithium supply is very important. I guarantee you, Ford, GM, all the major car makers will be co-investing in new mine capacity. They will be buying 30, 40% slugs of mines, either through some sort of takeoff where they guarantee they will take, you know, the outtake for, for 10, 15 years plus, or directly investing like they have in solid state startups um, with capital injections. Car companies are going into the mining business. They have got no choice in my view. Uh, and that's, that's a huge change, basically. Clean energy is being dirty, as I, as I said earlier. Now, ESG is a major problem for lithium mining. And, and when you invest in the sector, you have to be very cognizant of the risks. In Chile, in, in uh, next month, you have a referendum, which is going to look at a lot of aspects of their domestic mining industry, particularly the use of water. They've had a drought, which has gone on for almost 20 years now, far worse than anything in the US Southwest. And politically, that is a very charged issue. You're using about 70 to 80,000 litres of water for every metric tonne of, of lithium. Right. Now, some of that gets recycled back afterwards, but nonetheless, using brine, salt brine, and using those filtration ponds, which take 18 months to two years to actually extract lithium um, carbonate from the brine, that is a kind of limited process in an ESG world because of that pollution issue and because of that water offtake issue. If you go to Australia, if you go to spodumene, hard rock, that is a, an electromechanical fossil fuel intensive process which is in total, including shipping to China for processing, about three and a half times more carbon intensive than using Chile or Argentina or Bolivia. That is an incredible number. So it goes back to my point, clean energy is dirty at inception. It's fine to say solar or wind or whatever, you know, marginally the cost is zero and it doesn't generate carbon. Getting to the point where we can actually build capacity at the mo- incrementally is a very dirty process at every level, materials intensive, energy intensive, and carbon generating. So ESG-wise, would you say Australian lithium is equivalent to Chilean lithium? You can't say that because, because you have that carbon aspect. And I think that's going to be very important in the way projects are funded, in the risk premium, all that stuff in the next few years. So to keep that in mind as well. Fourth point I want to make, and this is a very important point. Imagine somehow the capital arrives from car companies, from the Biden administration, from wherever, to build up a Western lithium industry, right? So minor, mining, which is not controlled by China, because right now, most lithium projects have got some Chinese investment. Tianqi is the biggest lithium miner in the world. It owns a chunk of SQM. You know, just last month, you saw um, Ganfeng Lithium, which is the second player after Tianqi, listed in, in China, go off and buy another Argentinian mine for almost a billion dollars um, to get hold of salt flats production down there in Plata. They own anything that moves in the lithium space. So if you're going to create new virgin greenfield lithium sites, which have got no Chinese involvement, which are geopolitically secure from Chinese control, then you've got a bigger problem down the road. You build a mine in the USA, in Nevada, in Canada. How do you refine the output into battery grade lithium hydroxide to go into a gigafactory? Because right now, 80% 80% roughly of global refining capacity is in mainland China. Now, to, to, to just give you an idea of how difficult this refining thing is, Tianqi has a deal with an ASX listed company called IGO in Australia, and they were building a refinery in, in Northern Australia, right? 25,000 metric tons a year capacity refinery. It was meant to come online in 2018. It just came online last quarter. It's not gonna reach full capacity to 2025. Now, this is with an Australian company 
being handheld by Chan Ki, one of the most experienced players in the world in refining lithium. And it still ends up four years late, way over budget, and falling way short in production targets. How on earth do we think the US, Europe are going to possibly catch up with China in the next decade in the process of taking lithium from a mine and getting it into a battery? It's just not going to happen because we don't have the process knowledge. We do not have the material science engineers, the chemists, and process engineers at every level to make this happen. This is, this is accumulated knowledge. And unfortunately, the West has given up on manufacturing, given up on mining, really. Um, bright young kids do not go into these sectors anymore. And that's a huge problem in terms of the ambitions now from the Clean Energy Act, et cetera, to secure the supply chain. So I think those are, those are four issues, um, um, just four big themes in terms of the carbon stuff, in terms of refining, in terms of how do we fund the, the, the lithium and the vertical integration aspects of, of the whole supply chain, which I will throw at you. And you can come back at me in terms of clarifying or in terms of, you know, maybe disagreeing. I'm overwhelmed. I've got a whole page of notes. And of course, there's no time to dive into any of them. So I'll just pick one. Sean, the war in Ukraine with Russia, Belarus, yeah. has that in any way slowed down the movement towards electrification? Has it said the most important energy, the one that's most immediate, are carbon-based, natural gas, oil? That's what we need to focus on, not 2030, 2040 electrification of our cars. Has there been any sort of change in narrative from governments about the immediate immediate effects of uh, energy shortage? That has in terms of the grid, because you've obviously switched uh, coal, you're switching from, from gas to oil in terms of grid generation in Europe as an interim measure, just as an emergency measure. Finally, the Germans have given up on, on, on closing those three nuclear plants, which was just an insane policy, basically. I mean, our, our view on, on nuclear, we're hugely bullish on nuclear and uranium, because Ultimately, on a whole life basis, nuclear is lower carbon than wind, solar, or anything else because it's a 50-year lifespan. These things are 15, 20, and that is a huge, huge factor, which is not in most of the models. So, so nuclear is, you know, and the Chinese are building 18 new reactors. They've got 200,000 engineers now in the nuclear industry. Average age of those engineers is, is 30. The average age in the U.S. is about 58, right? So they are pushing hard, and they're developing new models. In terms of electrification of cars, it hasn't. In fact, if anything, I think it's just accelerating the trend away from we don't want to be reliant on Saudi, we don't want to be reliant on Russia, on autocratic regimes, which can turn the taps off at any time uh, on a whim. So I think, I think the idea is that once you build out the gigafactories in Europe, once Volkswagen and, and, and Peugeot and whatever electrify fully, and we get through this interim phase where people are going to be laid off, where you know, the factories need less workers, it's, it's, it's a simpler process. Once we get through that, that hump, we end up with a situation where we are more energy secure. We don't import all of, all. and then, you know, at the end of the day, we've got no choice because for a very simple reason, we are losing every couple of years about one and a half, two million barrels a day of refining capacity. Nobody is building new oil refineries. So if we don't do anything, right, we will not be able to buy, we won't be able to run new ICE cars in 10 years time because there won't be enough refining capacity to buy the diesel, diesel and gasoline. As, as we saw recently with, with obviously what happened with crack spreads, and the price of gasoline in the US. So we're running down the fossil fuel infrastructure. We've got to replace it with something. And solar is at a boom year in Europe. Who's making the solar into Europe? It's China, of course. So, so um, you, know, you, know, the, you know, yes, we're using more coal. Yes, we're using more gas in the very short term just to keep the lights on. 
but ultimately it's accelerated the transition push. Daniel, let me throw it to you, your questions. It appears like we're either in or going into just zooming in on the shorter term, a some form of recession in the world um, or recessionary type conditions from a growth perspective. Mm-hmm. A lot of the, so you've, you've got the lithium story in its own right, but then you've got the uh, demand story, which is joined at the hip, you know, in a lot of the EV, the cars, the, the whole works. Yeah. Um, and so we still see a lot of correlation overall with economic growth conditions um, and demand conditions. And, and that largely, from my viewpoint, seems to be what has ushered in uh, sort of the pause or the weakness in this sector to make this potentially uh, an interesting area to revisit uh, over the next several quarters or over the next year or two mm-hmm. to be accumulating potentially a you know, sizable allocation to this broader story. Yeah, and then the singles, singles for copper, singles for copper, which is far more cyclical, obviously, in terms of the recessionary risks and growth slowdown, right? Yeah, and so that's obviously what you're seeing because that just keeps coming through, and I'm just wondering what I'm missing because it seems too simple. Um, but well, no, it is. But look, look, look. Right now, year on year, total car sales in China are down. The consumer in China's on the back. They're selling the Rolexes. You know, they 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 stop start. COVID stuff is still going on. Confidence is terrible. But within that, new energy vehicles, including plug-in hybrids and full electric, is still growing like ter- you know, like topsy. And you're getting more incentives for that because the government wants that to end up being half the market. They were originally targeting 25 percent by 2025. It's now 20 percent, and it'll be 25% within the next 12, 18 months, right? So so everything is moving forward at a faster pace, basically. So that part of the Chinese economy is relatively booming. And what hasn't happened yet, but it's going to start happening very soon, is the Chinese are going to start exporting electric vehicles on a massive scale. And it's going to be an absolute shock for Tesla and for a lot of other players. So right now, there's a thing called the SEAL, which is the new BYD Tesla 3 equivalent, right? In many ways, it's more advanced. They've actually created... The body of the car, the floor of the car, basically, is now a structural component made from the battery. No one ever has ever done that before. And that's far more impressive than anything the Gigafactory is doing with, with a sort of single press on, on the metal thing. They're selling that into Japan starting in January next year. The price point is about a third lower than a Tesla 3, as it is in China. It's about $31,000 retail in China. Now, they can do that because they control the entire supply chain. And in fact, Tesla is already buying lithium phosphate um, batteries from CATL, but it's also buying batteries from BYD, almost certainly. Uh, you know, the formal announcement is, is due. So you're getting Tesla buying, you know, batteries and battery technology, because this is genuinely innovative technology. The BYD blade battery, what CATL did in, in, in lithium phosphate, what they're trying to do in sodium ion batteries, this is genuinely innovative. This is not copycat scale economy stuff. They did that to start with, and they've moved ahead very quickly indeed with Huge investment in R&D. So they're starting to outcompete Panasonic and Samsung SDI and LG Chem and all these established players. And that's why Ford, two weeks ago, tied up with CATL, which is now going to build a big factory in the US to supply the Ford because Ford is losing money on electric vehicles. And to get to its 88% margin target by mid-decade, they need cheaper batteries. So again, it goes back to that vertical integration price point issue. You know, I, I mean, the lithium price might come back 15 20%. 
who cares? Because the contract prices are, are, are still lagging so badly. They're going to go up 50, 60% from when they were last signed two or three years ago, even with a falling spot price. So I wouldn't obsess on the spot price, basically. And there will be correlated risk-off moves in miners generally, whether they're uranium, lithium, whatever, just in terms of the market and sentiment. But it's a great opportunity. There are very few proven ore bodies with a clear kind of um, you know, pathway, runway to production in the next five to 10 years. They will have their hands bitten off in terms of OEM car makers looking to secure supply. Um, and as I said, the contract pricing is what you focus on. It's been like iron ore a few years ago as it moved from, from sort of spot to contract. The same thing's happening in lithium. I'm throwing it back to you, Daniel. I have too many questions. It would go too far afield. We don't have enough time. Yeah. When I look across the broader space of lithium and the, the whole battery sort of world, like I say, like from our perspective, it looks like we're just still a little bit premature to kind of back up the truck, so to speak. You know, we have a condition that formed earlier this year that is very similar to, say, sort of early 2019, but still... Um, just it's it's really hard to compare the two. Um, the only other precedent might have been late 2014 in terms of just the washout in broader liquidity interest in that broader sector mm-hmm. and the initial sort of accumulation from larger money flows t- uh, to to sort of accumulating or reaccumulating positions in this sort of broader sector. The speculative crowd washed out in a similar way even now they're very distrustful of this rally in a lot of the different conditions in the lithium side of things in the mining and then in the battery uh, users and car makers and, and all of this sort of thing the fundamental health of all of these different companies however are pretty good um, especially all of the obviously because pricing is still you know, cash flows are still very rich, et cetera, et cetera. Well, this, well this is it. and there's going to be M&A. There's going to be a lot of M&A support in all of this. Yes, no, that, that's right. And a lot of strategic right. investments, as I said, from car OEMs, whatever. I mean, look, look at China. So China's been in a bear market, right? You look at the relative performance of clean energy within China indices. So internet tech has been a horror story, dead cat pounds, whatever. But, but ultimately, you look at stocks like BYD, at Ganfeng, at Chanqi, at some of the wind stocks, they have all delivered very strong year-to-date year positive returns. And that is relative strength that you have to respect. The market is going where the growth is, where the earnings surprises are, right? And where the upgrades are coming through. And it's all in that space. And, you know, you look at stocks in the US, like I said earlier, I mean, when I look at energy, it isn't just lithium. It's also the entire supply chain that helps you use energy more efficiently. So, for instance, if you're going to use lithium phosphate batteries, you and, and you think about copper prices, you've got to do something to make sure you use less copper in the harnessing for them, for, for cars, for instance, right? So, you know, we're using 60, 80 kilograms of lithium per EV right now. We want to reduce that. We want to make higher energy, energy density, less copper in the car. So stuff like psyllium kind of, you know, I mean, if you look at what's happening in silicon carbide, which is the stuff that Wolfspeed's built a big plant for outside New York, or look what OnSemi's doing in power semis. These guys have got a fantastic 10-year secular growth story because they're helping car makers use materials more efficiently, right? So whether it's recycling or it's technologies which allow you to use all this stuff more efficiently in the car and improve your margins or avoid some of these bottlenecks, you've got a fantastic multiple-year secular tailwind. And it doesn't matter what happens to the wider market. On semi, just hit a new high. You know, we'll speed them certain will later this year. These guys are in the sweet spot because they have a technology in the context of this electrification of car story, which is, which is you know, the next decade's mega story, where they 
have a lot to add in terms of value and they have got huge pricing power and they can sell anything they can make basically if they're booked out forever and there's a lot of japanese companies in that space as well there's you know there's there's loads of great secular growth stories out there which frankly there are nasdaq and what happens to the fed and, and terminal rate and whether it's cuts rates next year or keeps them flat it's kind of noise you know because as ever there's always a bull market in something and there's a bull market in this whole space right now beneath the surface Sean, the outlook is you're saying that new technology may come in in the next decade. Sodium ion batteries, yeah. maybe solid state batteries. Solid state is probably more mid, mid 2030s. Lithium ion is still the only game in town for the next, say, 10 to 15 years. 10 to 15 years. Mm -hmm. Also recycling, 10 to 15 yeah, years. Well, recycling needs obviously a pool of extant vehicles that are actually giving out their batteries. So you need to have millions and millions out there retiring to make that a big chunk of the market. So that's, you know, as I said, if, if we meet all these targets and we start selling tens of millions of EVs a year, then by mid 2030s, and assuming governments are gonna mandate recycling targets, which they will, I'm sure. I mean, most of the Chinese, it's interesting that Nissan recently with the Leaf in Japan, put export controls on the Leaf because they want to own the battery. They wanna keep the battery. So I think car makers will actually end up with a subscription type model where you rent the battery and you give it back at end of life, basically. So they control the material. That's one of the kind of shifts you're seeing. The Chinese have started this. Nissan's moving that way. One or two of the U.S. guys are talking that way. So, so you know, the, the entire model of how you sell a car, own a car, you know, and where the real added value is, is, is all kind of shifting as well. I was driving at the what you just raised, that governments are going to be mandating something, perhaps because what I'm seeing is that there may not be enough time for, for the Greenfield. Western companies, Western mining companies to commit to invest in mines if there's a deadline 10, 15 years from now, whereby the market may be completely different. And so perhaps then governments need to subsidize. Are they doing that? No. I don't think they are, at least in the West. Well, that's a mistake with the clean energy bill. The clean energy bill subsidized car makers selling EVs, but it didn't move down the value chain. And actually the subsidy is contingent on domestic content, which is impossible to achieve. So what they should actually have done, if they thought intelligently about it, was to subsidize the mine development and subsidize the refining development. Or, and the refining. Or, like they do in farming, in agriculture, set some sort of base floor price so that lithium can go below X price over the next 10 years. We'll buy it into some sort of strategic reserve. We'll have an SPR for lithium, whatever, just to give miners and their investors the, the confidence to make these 10, 15 year commitments. That would have been a very intelligent thing to do. I know in the early, uh, late 1940s through the early 1960s, the United States did something like, like that for uranium. Precisely. Put exactly. in a floor. Totally. And I would think they should be doing the same, but I'm not hearing any Western governments doing that at the moment. And, and it's, it's incredible because that is less market intervention than throwing out $7,500 EV subsidies to GM and Ford. I mean, I mean, let them slug it out and let the best man win. The, the intervention should be to ensure the raw material supply is geopolitically protected from Chinese intervention, et cetera, right? That is, it's a, it's a national security issue ultimately, right? And that, mm -hmm. that I think they have completely missed the point. Um, so the, re the real danger in all this is that we don't get the supply of refining and, and, and lithium stuff coming through. The car makers never get these subsidies. So they're kind of like hugely competitive against Chinese imports of, of finished EVs. Um, and, you know, it's, it's basically stillborn. It just doesn't really deliver uh, on its promise, despite all the hype in the last few weeks. So uh, I think it's a very flawed plan. I mean, it's, it's, it's a great statement of intent. And some of the solar subsidies and stuff are all great. But 
ultimately, I think in terms of this bottom layer, they've completely missed. I don't see the, how the market can solve this problem on its own, frankly. Daniel, I was thinking, Sean just mentioned national security issue. I've been thinking that phrase, national security issue during this interview. Do any of your market participants, are, are any of them governments or sovereign wealth funds, anything along the lines of serious long-term investors that can be in this market? Do you see anything like that in your market participants? Oh, yeah, yeah. I've got a couple of oil, oil sovereign wealth funds, you know, and the oil guys are obviously basically quite explicitly um, moving into technology to diversify and to hedge the long-term bets. Uh, Saudis are doing that. The Gulf guys are doing that. And, and so for them, clean energy makes absolutely good sense because that is the, the threat to peak transportation demand, et cetera. So to have a, a portfolio which gives you upside exposure to that, of course, makes perfect sense. So, so a lot of my long-term investors, I would tell you what's really happening is that a lot of big hedge funds and a lot of big family offices are now taking China out of the EM bucket and giving a separate China allocation. And within China, they're specifically creating a clean energy allocation, right? So that they're not seeing it as an EM story because at the end of the day, these companies are absolutely competitive with anything in Europe and the States in terms of the technology, the IP, et cetera. And you, you should, so putting them in an EM basket is, is incredibly stupid. I think we have to move away from these benchmarks in this, in this massive shift that we're currently seeing in terms of where the value is created. Um, and so the smarter investors, the ones that are less constrained, are definitely now thinking there is a huge, broad pool of stocks in the battery space, in the EV space, in the mining space, etc., in China, which doesn't exist in Europe and the States. If we're going to have a clean energy portfolio, we've got no choice but to hold our noses, go into the Asia market, go into Hong Kong, and buy exposure to some of these names. And, and I think that's, that's what's happening. Daniel, do you want to react to anything that Sean said, or do you have anything to say regarding the timing and what you're looking for triggers that may tell you, you, you said earlier, that it may be premature according to you, the models and flows that you're seeing right now. Are there any triggers, markers that you're looking for? Yeah. So firstly, I love Sean. This is fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> you can, yes, it's very good. Everything he's saying completely rings true with a lot of what we're seeing. Now, if I were to use analogies, you know, from a timing perspective, the clearest ones, you know, I've just been looking through a whole bunch of stuff while uh, you guys were continuing to talk. We had basically like a global growth, like the two biggest opportunities that came to accumulate positions in this space were the end of 2015 and then the end of 2019. If we ignore... Yeah the COVID shutdown in 2020. And let's just, you know, put that one aside because that was a little left field to the regular market sort of cycle or economic cycling um, of global conditions. You know, the, with the benefit of hindsight, the, the most opportune times were late 15 and then late 19 um, to, to pick up positions. The beginning of both 2015 and 2019 we had a similar sort of construct in terms of the way. So we have these aggregated models and I built them actually today uh, for these sectors just to make sure that I was seeing everything right around underlying liquidity. It's like order book depth, for example, in the S&P 500, uh, bids and offers and all the rest of it. And that 
on the one hand, it's an it's an, a liquidity type indicator. But when we step back from a globally, so like a a global complex adaptive system type perspective, it's almost like the inherent demand that the broader complex system is placing on any given market or commodity or whatever, often will pick up in the liquidity first. And so liquidity is like an expression of interest in this market from the broader world, right? And as a result, when we look at these aggregated pitches, especially across industries, what we end up with is real-time or even leading barometers of, say, industry health from a, uh, it's almost like real-time demand pitches is, is the secondary lot of information. And so that all, all of this sort of is ringing true in this space yet again. And if anything, if we have a repeat situation where depending on how you peg it, you know, the global growth cycle also, so the last two opportunities to accumulate positions, end of 15, end of 19, uh, was basically the end or the bottoming of that sub-cycle of global growth. And we've had this two to four year-ish sub-cycle of growth conditions in the world, you know, for the last 15 years. And presently, right now, it still seems like we're in a negative surprise environment in terms of decelerating growth or negative surprises to growth, especially because we've still got the central banking community still hiking into all of this and tightening. I, I do macro. That's my bread and butter. But I, I, when it comes to these kind of things, we have baskets of stocks, you know, that give thematic kind of active ETF type stuff. And I don't worry about this stuff because when the secular trend is this powerful, this is like 1984 and trying to buy into the personal IT revolution, right? You're at that early stage. You can see it happening. You're looking for software names, hardware names. Do I buy Microsoft, you know, Apple Bliss, whatever. And yes, Vulcan might be squeezing the, the life out of the economy with inflation, whatever, whatever, and, and it's a bear market. But ultimately, you've got this explosive energy coming through in terms of this mega trend. And I think that's where we're at. And, you know, in our basket, for instance, which we, we did a new one recently, which is a materials transition basket, We've got a South African mining stock, $10 billion market cap. It's in precious metals, but it's moving into batteries and it's moving into recycling and it's moving into safe lithium supplies. It's cheap as chips. It's down 40% in a year. I mean, you can buy value stocks that give you exposure to this. If you go a bit left field, you don't have to buy the, you know, there's whatever, a dozen lithium names in the market in the West, basically, if you don't want to go to the Chinese guys. But there's a hell of a lot of names in the recycling space, which are moving into batteries, which are moving into these adjacent areas. And when you look at lithium, wherever the supply comes from, be it taking a battery apart or digging it out of the ground, again, from the ESG perspective, it doesn't matter. It's what's the carbon footprint, what's the added value, what's the margin. And you know, there's one in Germany, which is, you know, it's a smelter. It's, it's, a, it's a recycling company, which is moving into batteries and is potentially going to invest half a billion in a huge battery recycling factory in Germany, which is trading on a single digit PE or multiple. I mean, there's cheap stocks out there the market hasn't alighted on because the ESG funds are generally pretty stupid. I mean, the fact is ESG is, I've never met an ESG fund manager who impressed me with the depth of their knowledge. They go, they basically skim along the surface and they never go a layer deep, let alone two layers deep. And that's where the opportunity currently is. Um, and so put the macro to one side, look at those mega trends and assume the stupid money will find them. And when the stupid money finds them, they'll be like SaaS stocks in 2019. They'll go, just silly numbers. Well, that's exactly the setup. The, the thing is, is that it's, um, you know, if I had to guess, which is stupid to do, but 
I, I think we're going to get another opportunity to buy these at a at quite a discount still over the next twelve months, and it's just purely on macro slowdown, etc., whatever. Well, fine, but you got you got to have you got to be ready, and, and you know, no one's ever brave enough when the moment comes. That's the problem when when the screen is horrible and red, and like it was back in June, right? And everyone's like, oh my god, um, you know, and everyone's downgrading their targets. So you know. I just think you you got a money average in and you take a five-year view and you say, look, this thing could be a multiple off. This could be a 10-bagger. And, um, and you know, at the end of the day, once you're happy, the management has skin in the game. They have the skill to execute. It's going to actually happen and not fall by the wayside. I think you can just assume the demand is there. So to my mind, nobody able to produce lithium in the next five to 10 years at scale will have a problem shifting it at a great price. It's done deal. That's... That's my takeaway. It is just, you know, it is not going to be an oversupply. It's going to be how the hell do we get our hands on the material to reach these EV targets? Um, and, you know, that's, that's, you know, I think a story which is still not fully understood. Daniel, just to be mindful of Sean's time, do you have any final theme, topic, question you want to ask? Not really. Um, I think it's just very compelling. We didn't end up getting into what I thought we would do, uh, but... Mostly because I don't think it's necessary. Like, it's fairly straightforward here. Um, yeah, yeah. As I say, look for the adjacent opportunities. Don't just look at the lithium miners per se, the recycling staff, the, you know, companies reinventing themselves. There's a lot of companies reinventing themselves into lithium suppliers via stuff like recycling. In the, and there's a lot of miners who don't have any lithium exposure right now who are moving from legacy mining into lithium, into new energy. Find those guys because they will re-rate over time. Okay, and and the market again isn't very good at recognizing this until it stares them in the face, and then you get a big move. So there's there's four or five miners at the top of my head. I could say, look, everyone knows Glencore is there. Everyone knows these these big names are there. Basically, you know, I mean, Freeport, whatever, Copper, all that story. But there's a lot of second and third tier guys now moving into lithium, moving into some of these green energy spaces, and they're not being recognized yet because there's too low profile and they're not covered widely. Um, so if you find those guys, I think you've got a, a value proposition with a, a free carry on the lithium re-rating. Sean, can you tell our audience one more time where they can find you, how to contact you? Uh, well, I don't have contact me, uh, but, um, but I am on Twitter at S Maharlan um, on Twitter. And I do post some of the stuff I'm reading in terms of clean energy and energy transition stuff, whatever, up there. So uh, feel free to follow me on Twitter and, um, and basically retweet stuff or, or sort of, you know, whatever. You're welcome to comment on that. Uh, but that's the that's the only way I interact with the retail space. Everything else goes out, as I said, to the institutional kind of space and is all kind of regulated, I'm afraid. Yeah, that's the modern way of contacting people. It's no longer phone calls or let alone emails. It's tweets and direct messages. Great, exactly. So, so there we go. So, so um, no, pleasure. And good uh, to connect, Emil. And um, thanks for inviting me. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you very much, Sean. Thank you, guys.